was September the 11th, 1985. It was midnight, and thousands of feet over the Great Smoky Mountains with Knoxville, Tennessee below him, the pilot turned the Cessna away from the city and to the southeast. He engaged the autopilot, opened the door, and jumped into the dark night and into eternity. The plane would fly on for nearly 60 miles until it crashed and exploded at a little town in North Carolina. The pilot, weighed down with cocaine and weapons, would impact the earth in Knoxville at the home of an elderly man who would awake the next morning to see the body in his driveway. After police searched the bag strapped to the pilot, word traveled fast back to Kentucky. One of Lexington's privileged sons, a former narcotics officer and a lawyer turned drug smuggler, was now dead. This is Fly By Night, stories of America's drug smuggling pilots and the people who chased them. These were stories of conspiracy, dangerous flying, of greed, adventure, and of murder. Our first episode is the story of Drew Thornton. Andrew Thornton II, known as Drew, wasn't your typical drug smuggling pilot because there were no typical smuggler pilots. Those who flew marijuana and cocaine from Central and South America and the Bahamas into the U.S. were not all cut from the same cloth. They were retired military and current airline pilots, flight instructors, crop dusters, and private pilots who became freelancers in the illegal importation of controlled substances. Some were cautious and constantly feared being tracked down and caught. They were often the ones who tried it once or twice and walked away. But some were aerial adventure seekers, flying cowboys who enjoyed the thrill of getting away with evading customs, the DEA, military patrols, and cops who might see something at their local airport that didn't look right. In a time when music lyrics echoed or overtly promoted expanding consciousness through illegal drugs, when social rebellion was fueled, or at least lubricated, by smoking a joint, it seemed for a while that America's appetite was nearly insatiable for substances made all the more attractive by a new era of prohibition. And where there was demand, there were those willing to go to great lengths to meet that demand. Smuggling by aircraft didn't begin with drugs. It became a popular and useful method of bringing crates of whiskey over the U.S. borders north and south during prohibition. Aviation lore includes numerous tales of whiskey being flown in from Canada. But the 3,987-mile border we share with Canada, not including Alaska, wasn't the only one that passed beneath pilots on their way to satisfy the thirst of those who craved whiskey that wasn't being crudely manufactured in bathtubs and in other less-than-sanitary conditions. In his paper for the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, entitled Boardwalk Empire of the Air, Aerial Bootlegging in Prohibition-Era America, Author Roger Douglas Connor recounts the story of the high-profile arrest of industrialist and oil tycoon Earl P. Halliburton. When Halliburton and his pilot Frank Glennon were arrested after landing the company's Ford Trimotor in El Paso, Texas, after flying in from Mexico with 10 cases of whiskey on board. With his wealth, it's likely that Halliburton's efforts may have been simply to replenish his own supply, or to help his friends during a time when good whiskey was hard to come by but others were far more organized and businesslike in nature. According to Connor, one of commercial aviation's early well-known pilots, Ed Musick, who first served as chief pilot of Aeromarine Airways and later as lead pilot for Pan Am and their Clipper flights, 
was running a behind-the-scenes smuggling operation in Aeromarine Airways planes on flights returning to the United States from Cuba. Connor writes that there is evidence that music was operating in conjunction with Al Capone's criminal enterprise in Chicago. Based on his research that included reviewing over 500 newspaper articles of the 20s and early 30s, Connor states that not only were airplanes used to smuggle alcoholic contraband, but there are stories of narcotics being found when smuggling aircraft were apprehended. A striking example of that was the story of Halliburton's pilot Frank Lennon and his death in a crash in Mexico only three years after being arrested in El Paso with Halliburton. This time in the debris of the crash, the illicit cargo Glenn was flying included narcotics. But smuggling by air would hit its prime during the 1960s, 70s, and early 80s, when smugglers moved loads of marijuana large and small by planes of all sizes. For many of the pilots, it seemed like a game. They didn't see themselves as true criminals or dangerous, bad people. It was more of a cat-and-mouse challenge to avoid law enforcement. As smuggling drugs began to transition from the almost exclusive use of boats to a mix of vessels on the sea and in the air, the early years of using planes were what some drug smuggling pilots would describe as the golden age. It was before the advent and widespread use of sophisticated technical tools like look-down aerial radar, and when small to medium-sized airports were often quiet, sleepy locations, where local sheriff's deputies rarely patrolled, or were sometimes paid to look the other way. It was a time when larger planes capable of delivering heavier loads of pot began to enter the picture. And for a while, unless there was an unlucky bus based on a slip of the tongue or someone reporting a suspicious plane landing and a number of suspicious cars and trucks appearing at the same airstrip at the same time, it was a time when small fortunes could be made with relatively little risk. Then came cocaine, and the stakes were raised with vast amounts of money to be made in a single trip. When the stakes were raised, so was the level of risk and danger. And for Drew Thornton of Lexington, Kentucky, an aerial adventure seeker with a penchant for a soldier of fortune lifestyle, that was okay with him. Thornton's early years were spent on the family-owned stud horse farm in Paris, Kentucky, just a few miles from downtown Lexington. His father, A. Carter Thornton, had a hand in raising or selling three Kentucky Derby winners. The descriptions of those who knew Drew Thornton as a child hardly resemble those who would know him later. Young Drew went to a private elementary school and then Sewanee Military Academy in Tennessee. It was there he would befriend Bradley Bryant, who later would become his co-conspirator and a key player in their shared criminal enterprise. But first, Drew Thornton entered the Army and trained as a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. He was wounded in action in the Dominican Republic, was awarded a Purple Heart, and returned home for a try at college. But that didn't last, and soon he was working on the family farm as a horse trainer. Before long, Thornton married university student Betty Zaring, a marriage that lasted only two years. Tiring of working for his father, in 1968, Thornton joined the Lexington Fayette Urban Police Department and was a part-time student at Eastern Kentucky, where he earned a degree in law enforcement. He would later earn a law degree, but only briefly practiced. With drug use in full swing at the University of Kentucky in the early 70s, Drew Thornton was selected to be a member of the Lexington Police Department's first narcotics squad. And that changed everything for this son of the bluegrass state. According to background interviews with Lexington police officers who worked with Thornton, 
He was known for cultivating a persona as a tough narcotics cop. And with Lexington experiencing a steady flow of drugs into the city and onto the university campus, Thornton and some of his fellow officers were soon suspected of becoming criminals themselves when they began to see how lucrative the other side of the law could be. During the time Thornton served on the new narcotics squad, he gained a reputation for sometimes keeping and reselling the drugs he and several other squad officers confiscated from people they arrested. To a number of local law enforcement officials who were keeping an eye on Thornton and several of his fellow officers in the narcotics squad, the reality seemed simple. Thornton and some associates, working for the low salaries of the time, had crossed the line from enforcer to criminal. Rumors were that evidence in the form of bags of pot or coke was not always checked in, and instead was recycled onto the streets of Lexington or nearby towns. And when the compulsion to have more kicked in, and their proceeds from street-level retail crime couldn't satisfy them, it was time to move up, and that meant leaving the police department. It was only after he left the narcotics squad that Thornton was able to afford expensive cars and clothes, and it was then that detectives who had worked with him became more convinced that the source of the income it took to support that lifestyle was illegal, and not simply a benefit Thornton could justify by having grown up in privileged circumstances. To make their move into large-scale drug dealing, Thornton, Bryant, and the others would need to find a source for wholesale amounts of drugs they could import into Lexington and central Kentucky. By most accounts, that source would prove to be contacts that Bradley Bryant developed in Las Vegas and El Paso. They were the Chagra brothers, Jimmy and Lee. We'll revisit the two shadowy organized crime figures later, but for now, it's enough to know that with the Chagra brothers' contacts in Columbia, Thornton and Bradley Bryant would grow their side business into what would become the company. Drew Thornton had a skill that would prove to be very useful in the importation of drugs. In the late 60s, he had become a pilot by training at Lexington's Bluegrass Field. Over time, he moved up from the single-engine aircraft he trained in to twins, and eventually into larger, faster twins. And Drew Thornton knew other pilots who were open to the high-risk, high-reward flying that came with transporting contraband with airplanes. When the average salary of a Lexington cop in the 70s was between nine to 12000 a year, it was hard to resist a payday more along the lines of the lyrics of the Glenn Fry song, Smuggler's Blues. You be cool for 20 hours, and I'll pay you 20 grand. As the opportunity to smuggle larger amounts of pot presented itself to Thornton and his partners, they realized they needed a transport-sized plane to make the long, lucrative run from South America into Kentucky. How the company purchased its first plane and when they made their first drug runs is lost to history so it's impossible to know for sure if Thornton and his co-conspirators had ever moved such a large amount of marijuana into Lexington before January the 11th, 1979, because if they did, they left no evidence behind. But on that winter day, it became clear that this small group of Lexington cops and their partners had moved into the big leagues of marijuana smuggling by air. By the time then-DEA agent and pilot Rick Sanders was assigned to Louisville, Stories had circulated widely about Thornton's illegal activities, both when he served as a police officer and especially after. Well, back in the day, uh, there were a number of former Lexington, Kentucky narcotics detectives that we say went to the dark side. And they uh, worked as detectives for a number of years. And then upon leaving the police department, they got into some smuggling. At the time, uh, he was a major player 
and the drug smuggling coming into Kentucky from the Caribbean and or South America. The thing is, Drew Thornton had the reputation of being an extremely intelligent guy uh, and was a good investigator. But um, as I said, went to the dark side and, and got into the smuggling of drug contraband coming into Kentucky. And uh, the thing I remember most is when I heard about a uh, person who had parachuted to their death and had flown a Cessna 404 from the Caribbean with a load of marijuana. I think it was marijuana, into the States, thought he was being tailed and put the autopilot on and parachuted to his death. Bordered by horse farms with thousands of acres of grass and white fences, the Lexington, Kentucky airport is known as Bluegrassfield. And with runways of that time long enough to handle commercial jets, it was not a challenge to land a four-engine DC-4 there. The DC-4, also known as the Douglas Skymaster, was already long in the tooth by 1979, as many had served in World War II when it was known as the C-54, a cargo plane that had distinguished itself in the famed Berlin airlift. After being surpassed by the DC-6 and then overshadowed by the arrival of jet-powered airliners, the Skymaster soldiered on, mostly as a dependable and well-regarded cargo plane. And by the 70s, they were cheap to buy and perfect for hauling anything, including large bales of marijuana, and they became a cargo plane of choice for drug smuggling operations. The Lexington Company Skymaster used much of its load hauling capacity by arriving with an estimated 10,000 pounds of marijuana that day. And that huge load alone was more than enough green grass to get most of the pot-smoking citizens of the bluegrass state high. But even at an airport of the size of Bluegrass Field, a DC-4 would stand out. The venerable Skymaster had a wingspan of 93 feet and a tail that stood just under three stories high. It was powered by four massive Pratt & Whitney Twin Wasp 14-cylinder radial engines, each developing 1,350 horsepower for takeoff. The DC-4 could cruise at an average 227 miles per hour. And with the right fuel tank configuration, it had the range to travel non-stop from South America to Lexington. More importantly, it could fly that long trip while carrying up to five tons of cargo, in this case, bills of marijuana. For Drew Thornton and his partners, that broad daylight delivery of 10,000 pounds of pot would make them a lot better off financially than they were the day before. There was only one problem on the day of January the 11th, 1979. Someone must have seen, then said something, because after the cargo was offloaded in Lexington, including with the reported participation of at least one Lexington cop, the DC-4 was ferried on the short 51 nautical mile hop to Bowman Field in Louisville, where it was abandoned with marijuana residue on board. And there begins the tale of a corrupt DEA agent named Harold Brown and his relationship with Drew Thornton and his partners. Jim Huggins was an FBI special agent in Lexington during the period when Bradley, Thornton, and their partners were most active. Along with others, Huggins investigated the activities of the company, looking closely at Drew Thornton, Bradley Bryant, Henry Vance, and Bill Cannot. But first, Agent Huggins talks about his background and his assignment when he first arrived in Kentucky. I entered on duty the FBI in uh, February 1967. I'd been in the Marine Corps prior to that time for about almost six years, and then I went directly into the FBI. 
And then uh, after training school, I was assigned my first office in Minneapolis. Worked up there for about 13 months and then transferred to Denver, Colorado. And then from there, I transferred up to Casper, Wyoming Resident Agency and worked in Wyoming and that area for about, oh, four or five years. Then I transferred back into Denver and was in the bank robbery squad in Denver for about five years. And then I transferred back to Kentucky in 1977 and remained here until my retirement in 1995. When I first transferred to uh, the Frankfurt Resident Agency in uh, the Louisville Division, I was assigned to work public corruption, Frankfurt being the state capital, and there were allegations of political corruption among several elected officials in the, at the state level, and it was the FBI's task at that time to concentrate on public corruption investigations, and I was given that assignment as the primary investigator on those cases. Through the law enforcement grapevine in Kentucky, Huggins had heard of possible corruption in the Lexington Police Department and had heard the name Drew Thornton as being a dirty cop. But it wasn't the FBI's responsibility to investigate such matters. That was up to the Lexington Police Department to clean its own house when necessary. But then, a stranger appeared at Special Agent Huggins' door with an odd tip. And if true, it was exactly the kind of crime the FBI would want to investigate. One day in Louisville, a gentleman walked in the Louisville office just as a walk-in with information and said he had information about a potential gun smuggling operation involving a person from Kentucky. And he wanted to talk to me and uh, ask to see if we were interested, which obviously was. At that time, he told me he'd been working out at a gym in Louisville and met a guy there by the name of Drew Thornton supposedly from Lexington, and that Thornton told him that he was uh, involved in a gun shipment operation to Norway, which I thought at the time was pretty pretty strange. He wanted to know if we would be interested in that, and I told him absolutely, and asked him if he could go back and get some more details, which he agreed to do. And based on that, I opened an investigation focusing on Andrew Thornton and the gun smuggling operation. There was no mention at that time of any drugs or anything like that. However, I'd heard of Drew Thornton before because of allegations about him in the Lexington Police Department years ago and supposedly a criminal activity on his part involving uh, drugs and this sort of thing. So he definitely was on, on our radar at the time, and I thought this might be an entree into that operation. Jim Huggins and his fellow FBI agents and local and state law enforcement could not have envisioned how strange and convoluted the case of drug smuggling pilot Drew Thornton, Bradley Bryant, Henry Vance, and DEA agent Harold Brown would become. These co-conspirators and those who either shielded them or looked the other way would be responsible for operating one of the most successful drug smuggling businesses in the heartland of the country. Before it ended with the death of Drew Thornton in a Knoxville, Tennessee driveway, the operations of the company would include the importation of massive quantities of drugs, allegations of trading stolen military equipment for drugs in Colombia, the disappearance of a possible informant and witness, the assassination of a prosecutor in Florida, and the strange death of a DEA agent. In Episode 2, we'll hear more from retired Special Agent Jim Huggins and others. They'll recall what they knew or suspected about the smuggling activities of Drew Thornton and his associates, including their connection with criminal elements in Las Vegas. 
Fly by Night is brought to you by Midnight Flyer Media. Theme music is Darker by Hendrik Anderson with additional music by Ave Stites. Show art is by Aini with additional design by Ave Stites. The show is produced and hosted by Charles Stites with editing by Ave Stites and additional mixing and audio support by Resonate Recordings. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review and subscribe to Fly By Night wherever you get your podcasts. And for photos and more on the key players in each episode, visit flybynightpodcast.com.